It's a gimme. I'm going to give it to you. All right. Oh, is there a part three? Yeah, it's part oh, three. Oh, is, is that on the three, three times? Or? No, no, this is just out of so was that, first. So that, was that in, did it end up being an eagle? No, it was birdie. It was, a, it was part three. Okay. Yeah, it would be an eagle, but it had to be a home one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just thought yeah, maybe he'd blow. I thought maybe he'd blow, you know, a little bit on it, push it in or something. Right? Yeah, well, we've tried something. All right, well, well, we're here to talk about uh, uh, judges, and we're here to look at judges 17. We'll probably have to do judges 17 and 18 together, and then somehow they're going to, have to figure out how to do judges the last three of judges as well um, together. They kind of all fit together. There, we started last week in unpacking a little bit of Judges 17, and we compared it to Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we saw the, the, discon the, the disconnect between what God says, this is what you must do, versus this is what they did. They did it like exactly the opposite. If you remember that, it was there uh, as we read uh, uh, Deuteronomy, and I believe it was Deuteronomy 12. I wanted to talk a little bit more, too, a, a, a prep for these last five chapters, because, again, I told you these five chapters all uh, come from a different perspective, where before we've seen how the judges the, the, rose up to help save or d deliver Israel from their oppressors. Uh, what we're looking here in these last five chapters is kind of a glimpse of the ordinary Israelites. How were they in responding to, to God and to God's word? Were they following the law? Were they disobeying the law? And, uh, and what happens with them? And we're going to look at, the, we're going to look at regular, regular Israelites. We're going to be looking at the, the tribal leaders. We're going to be looking at the religious leaders. And we're going to find that all three of them, every case, they're lacking huge in their ability to follow God's word. And, and just as some, some, con, uh, some different perspectives, I've got a, a list of, of things that are interesting about the five chapters. We got, basically, we've got the tribe of Dan in, this, in these first two chapters, 17 and 18, and then 19, 20, and 21, we're dealing with the tribe of Benjamin. And, and to give you a little background of, of that, I uh, probably need to have you look at, the, uh, look at your maps if you have them. Uh, I'll just quickly put this up on the board. Um, so if you've got uh, Galilee, Dead Sea, um, over here you've got um, the uh, east side of, of the Jordan, you've got uh, uh, Manasseh, uh, you've got Reuben, uh, you've got Manasseh over here as well. On the, on the west side, you've got Ephraim, uh, you've got down here, you've got Judah, and in, inside of Judah is Simon, which is kind of weird, but it's, it's like a, an area right in the middle of, the, of uh, the tribe. And then in this area right through here, as we come out to the, the, uh, the coastline, You've got Benjamin, is, this is Benjamin, and this is Dan. They're the smallest of the tribes, and that's probably some of the reason why things happen the way they do, is these two tribes are really small, and they're having a hard time conquering this particular area of, uh, of uh, the, the, the Holy Land. So if you look at these two tribes, you, you see here they're both signed uh, a territory right in the middle of the land right between Ephraim and Judah. If anything, they're almost a buffer. Remember, Ephraim becomes known as the leader of the ten tribes eventually that, that break off from the, the United Kingdom. And uh, uh, Benjamin actually ends up going with Judah. Simon, by that time, is pretty much absorbed by uh, Judah. And so while we say that the ten tribes went north, it, they're really lost in, in, the, in Judah. They've become intermarried, apparently, by the time of, of uh, Solomon. <clears throat> but Dan, and that's what we're going to be talking about in these two chapters here, Dan ends up moving. <clears throat> says, you know what, I don't like this area, so we're going to go this way, and we're going to come up here, and we're going to reestablish ourselves up here. 
because they have a hard time taking on their, their captives. So both tribes find themselves in pretty difficult straits for different reasons. Dan is unhappy and unable to occupy the territory that it's assigned by God. God says, this is where you're, this is where you're going to be. Dan ends up going, you know what? It's too hard to do God's will. So we're going to move. We're going to do it our own way. Uh, in the case of Benjamin, Benjamin uh, incurs hostility of all of the other tribes because of something that happens uh, with their ability to, with, with the way that they respond to, um, to, to visitors among their midst. And we'll, we'll take a look at that. It's very similar to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and why God brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, almost identical in what happens with the tribe of ben, Benjamin. In both tribes, in both stories, we're going to look and find out that there's a, a Levite that's involved uh, who remains nameless but apparently plays a pretty important part in both stories. Uh, <clears throat> in both uh, of these Levites have a Bethlehem Judah connection. So both of them, for whatever reason, are somehow connected to, to uh, Bethlehem, and we'll find that out. Both of them have also connections to Mount Ephraim, which is in the middle of the Ephraim air, air, uh, territory. And, uh, uh, and they both seem to travel through that area. Some of them, uh, in fact, uh, in the second story, uh, the, uh, the uh, Levite actually lives in Ephraim, in the mountains, in the hill country. Uh, both are in, involve a priestly character who's uh, inquiring of God to uh, how to do certain outcomes. And in one case, God truly does answer. In another case, God doesn't answer, but the, the priest basically lies. Um, <clears throat> both of them talk about Shiloh. Both of them are military contingents. Uh, and in both cases, they have a significant importance of the, that. And in both cases, it's, it's we start off and we end with the refrain, in those days, Israel had no king. So if you want, it's almost like, remember we've talked about how in the Old Testament, well, even somewhere in the New Testament, we have what is called inclusios, or what I sometimes tell you or think of as bookends. God didn't, these writers did not have the ability to use an Apple computer or a, a PC and be able to change fonts and do bold and underline and strike out and put in parentheses and all that. that. That just wasn't the way they did things then. What they did is when they were looking for something specific to mention and they said, okay, this is really, really important, there were a couple of ways that they would do that. One of the ways they would do it is using what we call an inclusio, which is what? In those, it's the repetition of something over and over again. And so you have here in, um, uh, you have that same sort of thing here in, uh, in the beginning of, uh, the middle of 17 and the beginning of 18. You see here in verse 6 of 17, it says, In those days there was no king in it, and everyone did that was right. In verse, 18, verse 1 of chapter 18, In those days Israel had no king. Look at verse nine, uh, chapter 19. In those days, verse 1, in those days, Israel had no king. It's inclusios. So what you're saying, what, what, when a writer does that, they do it on purpose. And they do it on purpose because they're going to say, this is really, really important, and we want you to catch this. So here's the, the bracket here, and here's the bracket here, or here's the two bookends. Everything that happens in the middle is really important you need to know about. In this case, you have double, kind of double inclusios going on. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Over the next, uh, and by the way, you can look at that throughout the Old Testament. You'll find this uh, re repeatedly happening from time to time. And sometimes you find it in the New Testament. Specifically, every once in a while, you find it in the Gospels. So if you look for it and you're aware of it and you know about it, it helps you to understand what's going on and why that, and say, oh, this is important. I need to figure out why. Okay? All right. That was free. My teaching hat. Take that off. Put on another hat here. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> let's start with um, let's start with chapter seventeen, and, and let's just read through chapter seventeen all the way through. It's a short chapter, for, uh, thirteen verses. We'll start with Danny's table, John's table. John, good to have you back, bud. Uh, Gary's table. 
uh, Daryl's table and our table, and we'll read the chapter 17. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. Then he gave the 1,100 pieces of silver back to his mother and said, I wholeheartedly devote the silver to the Lord to be made into a sculpture made in a molded image of my son. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made into a carved image and a molded image. And they were in the house of Micah. Micah had a temple for worshiping idols. He made a, an ephi and some house idols. But then Micah chose one of his sons to be his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. A young Levite from Bethlehem, Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and he journeyed as he journeyed. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I believe like from Bethlehem and in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. And Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. Then the Levite was content to dwell <coughs> with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. All right. So, God has established three institutions in society. Do you remember what they are? What are the three major things that God, institutions God has established? The priest. Okay, so we say, let's call that worship, worship community. What else? Family. Family, home, okay, and one other. It's the one that we all like to complain about. Government. Government, of course, right, government. So home, government, and, and worship community. In the Old Testament, uh, you have the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, we have the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, it's the pre, it's the it's the temple worship. In the New Testament, it is the what replaces the temple? Jesus, Jesus, us. us. We're the temple. We're the temple. The church. So yeah, Jesus is the head of the church, right? Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone of the church. Psalm eleven uh, three says, "If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do?" When the foundations crumble, society tends to fall apart. What's happening today? Just asking a question for a friend. <clears throat> we see society coming apart. Why? Because the foundations are not stable anymore. Does it have to be all three? No. It could just be one. Can one hold every the others up? Family, maybe, maybe. Family would probably, in my apparent my opinion, family is probably the most important. By the way, which is the first established in the Old Testament? Family, right? Of course, worship comes pretty important because you know God and Adam and Eve are spending quite a bit of time together. Let's just say in the garden in the cool of the day. All right, so. So we have a situation where you, uh, you see a family who is spiritually and morally confused and big time confused. They've managed to break almost every one of the Ten Commandments that God's given. What are the, what are the, what are they, do you remember what, they, what did they do? 
What are the Ten Commandments and how did they break them? In this passage. Did this man honor his mother? No. Build images and idols? Sure, yeah. What else did he do? He lied? He basically broke uh, the 5th, 8th, ninth, 10th commandments as well as the 1st and the 2nd and the 3rd. So let's see, 1, 2, 3. But the only one we're not sure if he broke or not was uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy. We don't know about that one. But I think almost all of the others he broke. Does that sound vaguely familiar today with anybody else? Most of us have a problem keeping the Ten Commandments. Regardless of, and by the way, in Thursday we're reading a book about whether or not the Ten Commandments and other commandments are important or not. So we'll, we'll uh, uh, if you come out, we'll have a, an interesting discussion on that. So this man uh, is interesting that they, they do that. By the way, it seems as though they're, they're, they're lying to God, too. Did you notice that? She says, the son gives back 1,100 shekels of silver, right? She says, I'm going to commit it all to God. And then what does she do? She gives 200 to the silversmith. Just out of curiosity, does that remind you of any other story in the New Testament, in Acts? Yeah, Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. Was it, what was their sin? Was it that they didn't give everything? What was their sin? They lied. Yeah, what is she doing? She's basically lying too. Make a big production. I'm going to do this. This is a really weird family. By the way, and then they go on and they do this interesting thing here. She has, she, she pronounces a curse on the person who stole the, the, her money. And then as soon as she finds out that it's her son, she tries to negate the curse. Have you noticed Oh, bless the Lord, my son. You know, bless him. He bless you for what you've done. Really? Is that kind of weird for you as well? Mom, you know, looking for, mom's always, maybe, maybe it's your dad, maybe that did that. But, you know, parent, they don't hold up. They, you know, they, they, their word isn't, isn't true. You can't trust them. You know, or, or maybe just. Isn't it a good thing that she forgave him? I mean. He returns the money, which what? is a good thing, and then she forgives him. Well, it's better than better. You know, here's here's a, here's a question: What should he have done if he was following the law? What sh- what were the proper way? What was the proper way of going about returning the money? Hmm. Restored five times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what else? By the way, if you restored it five times, it would be the same amount that Delilah got from, from the Philistines. Just a, a, an odd curiosity there. What what else are you supposed to do? He 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 confesses to his mom. What else should he have done? Pay back five times. What else? Yeah, he should he should have confessed to God and then gone to a priest and, pre- and presented an offering. Does he do any of that? Well, he makes so, his own priest. He makes one. You know, if you if you don't like the the rules of your religion, make your own up, right? That's yeah. That tends to be what's going on here. In my uh, translation, it said that um, she turned the two hundred pieces of silver. And had an image carved and an idol cast, and one of the guys reading there said it was uh, the idol and the image was of him. Could My be. mind doesn't say that, so could be. We don't. It's it's a little unclear in the text, but it's very possible. I mean, that would be quite the ego trip, huh? Yeah, wouldn't it though? You have an idol of yourself on the shelf. <laughs> Well, some of you guys, when you were younger, used to do that with mirrors, but I'm just saying. <laughs> some of us now avoid mirrors whenever possible and, and fail to put on our glasses when we're looking in the mirror. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> she tries to change the curse and the blessing. 
You know, I, just a side note, I, I ran across this quote. I thought it was interesting. Vance Havner, who was a, an old-time uh, Baptist Bible fellowship preacher, uh, used to say, we, should, we shouldn't worry about the government won't allow uh, children to have Bibles in school. They'll get free Bibles when they're in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting quote. I just wanted to pass it out there just for, you know. So uh, it's interesting that um, one scholar makes the comment that when she changes the curse into a blessing, he relates it to Balaam and his inability to curse Israel. And how he, you know, every time he went to curse them, he ended up blessing them. <laughs> He's being paid by a foreign king. You know, I think it was the king of Moab. I don't remember if it was or not. I think, I think it was. And um, anyhow, it was just kind of funny. So uh, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Uh, and then he goes about and he installs a Levite as a priest. What, is, that, is that allowed? Is that legal? Well, he starts off with his kid, yeah, which is kind of strange. First of all, just a, and and an aside to that, when I think about that, what would you think about your your father giving you a job, and then taking it back and giving it to somebody else? Same same job. I don't know whether the Levite he considered maybe he considered the Levite more qualified. Well, in a sense, he's following <clears throat> the Torah, which. So, yeah, right. you know, the <laughs> Levites are the priests, right? So, well, the Levites were the workers. The workers. Yeah. Take care of the temple. They were also supposed to collect the tithes and offerings. They would go around to the, to the, uh, throughout the land. Did they have their own? Did they have their own uh, property? No. Nope. Actually, they had. They did have about ten cities. Was it forty-eight? Forty-eight total cities. Okay. Side of that. Six. 48 total, and they had six cities of refuge, three and three. Right, on each side of the of the, of the Jordan. But they so, were the only ones who were allowed to be priests, right? They were the only, well, only Aaron's family. Aaron's family. So it had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. Was this guy a direct descendant of Aaron? We don't know. Well, we're going to find out when we get to chapter 18. He isn't. He, but he's related to Moses. So he's a shirt tail relation, but everybody, every Levite is a shirt tail relation to Moses and to Aaron. So Exodus says this um, in Exodus twenty nine nine: the priesthood, referring to Aaron and his sons, the priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. In this way, you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Numbers sixteen ten says. He has uh, brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself. Now you are trying to be priests too. In other words, there was a group that was trying to, to usurp the authority of Aaron and his family to be the priests. And, uh, and God judges them. So it's kind of interesting that there are some very strict rules that you're supposed to do. And uh, Micah pretty much ignores everything. Which is kind of fun, right? <clears throat> that works out well. We today's saga. <laughs> today's saga, yeah. It's, it's interesting because they're trying to, they're believed that, they'll, that this will come back again. Remember what we saw in Jerusalem with the... Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea how you, you know, do not they find... If, even if they found genealogies that were, that were back... During the time of the first century, no one's kept them up to date, yeah. unless unless there's a special group of Levites hidden someplace. I think it's amazing that there's going to be twelve tribes reassembled, and I have no idea. You know, that's what's amazing in Revelation. You're going to find still twelve thousand of each of those tribes, which means they're they're around somewhere. Yeah, I, it, we, we're talking about in Revelation where it says that, that God brings back all of the, the and reestablishes, reconstitutes the nation of Israel with all 12 tribes. Plus the, 12, the 144,000. Right. Well, it's hard to say. There, there, was a, there was an interesting, I wish I, I, wish I had made a, a recording of this documentary. I'm not a big documentary guy, but Gary is. 
And uh, so Gary, Gary didn't see this one. Gary didn't see this one, but he should. He should have. Gary, Gary needs to go find it for me. It talks about the twelve, the lost tribes of of Israel, and they did some DNA analysis, and they 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 found traces of of uh, uh, Jewish or what would be actually Israelite blood. Remember, Jew, a Jew is is what. Is is a, is a Jew? A Jew is only the the lower tribe, with maybe a few of the upper the, the upper tribes that came down to, to spend time with them. But Jew, the, the the term of the breakup of of Israel, and this was Judah, and then you shorten that to Jews, right? So that's that. This is this. The rest, the ten, the ten tribes are called Israel. So, but there is a, there apparently is a documentary that says that they've traced uh, genetics genetically have traced uh, the, the the genetic markers of of an Israelite or a Jew uh, into various parts of the world. In, in fact, some over in in Asia. Um, so you know, if you take if you think about the Assyrians and they carry people off into captivity, who knows where they all went to? <coughs> so. What's interesting to me, though, is that how society believes in DNA in such a way when God created man, and it's nowhere that I can find in the Bible that says that God is going to let us know how he did it. And we take this scientific thing that somebody put together and we'll try to connect everybody in some kind of way. Well, I, I actually kind of think that by if, if we can figure out a way of connecting everybody through DNA, it just goes to prove that creation well, happened. Man. Creation happened. I mean, you think about the ark. <laughs> we all came from the ark. I know certain people think they had their own ark out there. But. <laughs> We all came from the ark. It's just that simple. Yeah, I, I had a notion going yacht. You know, just... you know, for what it says, then you know we're all brothers and sisters. It's just that simple. Does you know, does change? Need to tell you that. You well, in scripture, it, I just think it. I I always find it fascinating. Science wants to 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 prove something or find truth in something, and usually when they do, eventually, eventually it seems like it comes back and. Pretty much agrees with scripture, yeah. somehow. You know whether or not it makes sense to us at the time. It might not for <laughs> generations. So I'm, I'm always reminded of the fact that that, uh, and I'm not sure that archaeology would be considered a science. I'm not sure what it would be considered. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a science. Gary says it's a science, guys. It's just what you know. You're good to go. Well, why wouldn't it be? I have no idea why it wouldn't. So, but here's here's my point. Prior to the beginning of the 20th century, no one had ever found any evidence of this empire called the Hittites. Guess what? They found the Hittites. Guess what? Bible's true. Huh? Strange how that works out. Yeah. Again, yeah. Look at the prophecies of of of, of uh, Jesus, you know, etc. So, yeah, we're we're fire field here. Let's try to get back at least. Why are you laughing, Keith? Thirteen verses. Well, we're halfway. We're almost there. We're we're at, we're at chapter. We're we're in verse four or five, something like that. What were you supposed to do when Micah establishes his own shrine? Uh, as a place to worship. Now, perhaps it's synchristic in the sense that he is combining idols and worshiping of Yahweh, because he brings in a a a worker of a, of the temple uh, who is a uh, who's a Levite who has a connection to Yahweh. But what were they supposed to do with all of? Were they supposed to go around establishing places of worship all over the place? No? What were they supposed to do? Check out Deuteronomy with me. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 12. I know those of you that have electronic Bibles, you have to punch in a couple of things, you know. 
Deuteronomy chapter 12 and start in verse 2. No, hey, I got my I have my digital I have my digital Bible too. Mine is just that it's already open to that spot. All right, in chapter 2 and verse 7 it says destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are disposing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their asterisk poles in fire, and cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place, the place that Yahweh your God will choose from among all of your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling, and to that place you must go. And there you to bring your offerings, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your special gifts, and what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of, of Yahweh your God and your families, sh- you and your family shall eat, and you shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You're supposed to only go to one place that God has established. And by the way, at this point in time, that's in Shiloh, and Shiloh just happens to be in Ephraim. <coughs> so what does Dan? What does this guy Micah do? Builds his own place. Is that was that what the law said to do? No, it wasn't. But again, there was no king in Israel. Uh, judges had no central authority. Uh, the judges were not really able to undertake significant spiritual or social reform among the people. They just were there to save them from the enemies. Think of it as the raising up of a general in the army. So, But the priesthood and the tribal leadership and the judges uh, are seen in the narrative to be part of the problem. They're not part of the solution here in Judges. All of them are, are corrupt, or, or a vast majority of them are more than than average. So the problem is that if you have a if you have a king, is that always a good thing? No. No. Why? Look at Saul. Look at Saul. Look at Manasseh, who's the last of the kings of the, of the ten tribes. Yeah. It it can be pretty bad. So having a king can be as, as much of a problem as a blessing. Because sometimes kings lead us in the wrong direction. It's good to have checks and balances, I think. But Michael seems to be a person like um, many people that come up with a lot of money. They always they seem to want to control everything and make everything in, in their life. Yeah, that's that's kind of true. You know, it, 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 I don't know if it's because we. I don't know if it's because the average person who doesn't have money defers to the people that have money or if the people that have money assume that because God has blessed them with money, they, they've made them wise in other areas of life, which isn't always necessarily the case. You know, I, I, I've, I have found in my own uh, experience that often the men and women who had the least amount of money were actually the, sometimes the most the more spiritual of the people that I knew in a church. It was pretty amazing sometimes. My father-in-law was never a, a well man, a well-to-do man, and yet he was uh, incredibly spiritually wise. I, I I have come over the years to uh, really appreciate his his insights that he had and uh, his uh, he had a he had some college education but not much it was interrupted because of world war ii and and came back and he had family so he had to take care of him um so um yeah not everybody that has an education or wealth and yet what happens often in churches is that the families with the money are the ones that end up controlling the church because they control the purse strings um, it's amazing how often that happens. And, and there, in small churches especially, it happens because there's usually just one family. Mm-hmm. And they kind of run the church, you know, um, from the sidelines. If something doesn't go their way, they, they talk to the pastor about it. 
you know. Um, I can remember a, a very large church here in the area that I was involved with uh, years ago, and I was given very strict instructions to uh, make sure that when we did our uh, satellite that we did not take certain families, that, that we made sure that that satellite stayed a part of the uh, mother church because three out of the four major giving groups in the church were families that were attending the satellite. <laughs> of course, they also were the ones that made sure that, that uh, you know, if they didn't like something, it was interesting how often the senior pastor heard about it. <laughs> Another church that, that the, the senior pastor, you know, there, there's a balance between being a, a pastor who's king and, the, and I've been in churches where that was the case, and I've been in churches where the pastor was no more than a puppet. And in both cases, it's bad, because the pastor doesn't get to do his job as being a pastor. It's not what he's called to do in the ministry if he can't operate within the guidelines that God has given him. If he has to constantly answer to, you know, to a group of people that are at times not overly spiritual. Um, and the other side of the course, you get a, a pastor who is the king, and what happens? He rules, and, and to the point of, of not allowing anyone and putting anyone down that had any, uh, you know, uh, authority or wisdom. I remember I was in one church, and uh, I'm going, well, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why are any of the men that are, that are elders elders? Because I don't see that they have the qualifications. And I asked quietly and off to the side one of the other staff persons about it. He says, well, it's because our senior pastor chased all of the ones that had any spiritual insight. He's pretty well chased them all off. I'm going, oh, that's not good. Not good at all. So it, it's you can have positives and negatives uh, with having a king. And... Um, you know, positive and negatives in having a family, having a, someone in your family who's a priest, too, right? Or a pastor or a, a whatever. The job of the Levites, by the way, were to assist the priest, not to be a priest. They were to teach the law to the people, and they were involved in sacred music. So <clears throat> you said they assisted the priest, but mm -hmm. not be a priest. So That's correct. The priests were not Levites? They were Levites, but yeah. they were a special branch of the Levites. One they were family lineage. One family lineage. One family lineage. There were three it, sons because they, the three sons became, they were the Levites and the only ones. And, <clears throat> Levites were the three sons of uh, um, um, Le Levi. Levi. And then they took him <laughs> Yeah, he was. Everybody didn't come from Aaron, but they kind of helped all that. Stuff. Yep. 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 They were, their, their job was to, you know, when they were in the, in the wilderness and they traveled, the Levites' job was to pick up all of the stuff of the tabernacle and move it and then reset it up, break down the setup all the time. So yeah. those... That was good. Yeah, yet they weren't allowed to go into the holy place. Remember all it. Only Aaron they could go and wrap it up. Mm -hmm. So they had wait for them to wrap it up, then I could carry it. Yeah. They could be... Well, in the, in the Holy of Holies. They could go into the, the, the priests could go into the holy place because they had special duties in the holy place, which is, remember, the first part of the tabernacle. But the Holy of Holies, only the high priest was to go in there. So it's, it's, it's yeah. yeah. So this causes a problem on chapter th or, uh, verse 13. Verse 13. Now I know the Lord be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a big time problem. And, and, you know, and the problem often is that we have this, this idea of uh, basically this Levite is nothing more than a hireling. You know, we think about Jesus, he talks about the shepherds, and he talks about hirelings, the people that are, that are just there for pay. They're not there for mm -hmm. anything else other than the pay that they get. Well, this way, guy has just started his own religion with his own priest. And yes. He's an idol of himself. He's got pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, tr it's kind of a problem. You know, you can't enjoy the blessing of God if you're, if you're, if you're basing your ministry on, on, on hiring hirelings versus shepherds. True shepherds don't see their work as a career. And run off for a better job when the opportunity comes. But that's exactly what we're going to find in, in chapter 18. This Levite gets a better offer and runs off to it. You know, he, he hasn't been there that long. 
That's right. God, God keeps calling me. I've always found it fascinating how God seems to call people every couple of years from, from church to church. I've also found it fascinating how it is that the people pray and, and seek God's will, and are, when they vote on a, on a pastor coming in, they're all 100, 100% believe this is God's will. And then about 18 months later, they're going, I don't think this was God's will. I think we missed it somehow. You know, it's interesting how that tends to happen. So perhaps it's because they're not praying nearly as much as they were. I'm just thinking that might be a possibility. Anyhow. So what's with this uh, in verses 10 and 11? It's kind of like a play on words where Mike is talking to this Levite. And he says, you can be a, a father and a priest to me. And then the next verse, it's like the young man became like one of his sons. It's like the, a role reversal. Here, you can come and be like a father to me. And then the very next verse... No, he's the father to the young Levite. Okay, what you have here is um, is an honorific title, father, in the sense that you're someone who's going to give me uh, wisdom and give me insight and give me direction and help me in the, in the direction that I'm going to go because you're going to be the, the priest of my new religion. You know, And so it, it's almost like um, in... Uh, um, in uh, Judges uh, chapter 5, I think it is, with Deborah, she's called the mother of Israel. It's, a, it's, it's again, kind of an honorific title. It's not like she's the oldest woman in, in there, but she is, um, uh, during the monarchy, father was a, an honorific title for prophets. And perhaps, I don't know this for a fact, I don't know if I, I'm not that well acquainted with the specifics as to why uh, Catholic priests are known as father, but uh, it could be that it's an honorific title as well in the sense that, that prophets of uh, the Old Testament are called fathers. I don't know that. It was applied, um, it was applied uh, to priests who exercise spiritual authority and care, uh, so perhaps that's the other reasoning uh, in the Catholic Church. Again, I'm not speaking ill of it. I'm just simply talking about the fact that they mm-hmm. call their pastor. Apparently, this fathers. Levite was much younger than Micah, so yes. age-wise, he could be considered like He's, one of his sons. Yeah, and he was like one of his sons in the sense that he was being taken care of by Micah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feed you, I'm going to clothe you, I'm going <clears> to <throat> house you, and I'm going to give you a, a stipend. I'm going to give you an allowance. But on the other hand, he's, when you look at it, he's lost, to me, he's lost all credibility. Oh, yeah. He says that Micah constantly it's a it's a slippery slope once we start making our own rules isn't it <laughs> this kid's just wandering around the country looking for a place to live and he's like hey this is a pretty good gig I'll make it. <laughs> you know they, they give me 10 shekels I got food board clothes what else do I need and I'm a priest <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah. So he's, that's I love that this basically kind of goes through the first part of the story and then it soon he gets a six and says, in those days everybody that was right in his own eyes. So I was thinking, I need to go back and review what I do. Am I doing the same thing? Because this is basically a learning lesson, right? Yeah, how often is it that you and I follow our own thoughts and have created our own way of worship or our own religious experience? And system, whereas God has been very clear as to what He wants, and it's you know it's one of the again for those of us on Thursday, it's one of the struggles we're going through with that book, right? And we're, we're in uh, the next part of that book this Thursday, which means I got to get reading. Um, <laughs> anyhow, um, yeah. So there's a there's a strong possible a problem with the fact that we have a tendency to make our own religion. We what's comfortable for us. You ever thought it's kind of funny? I mean, and, and I, I struggle with this because I like, there are certain types of music that I like and certain types of music I don't care as much for, right? And especially in a church. So <clears throat> when I go to church and I go to worship, why is it that my opinion matters as to whether or not it's the right or the wrong music? Shouldn't it be God that matters whether it's right or wrong in his opinion versus my opinion just saying and and same thing when it comes true with the way that the things we do in the church 
you know, we've got people that have spent hours and days and sometimes months in planning things. And then we sit there and, of course, our, what we want to do is we want to go, you know, I'm going to be the Russian judge today and I'm going to judge that at 3.5. <laughs> you know, that performance was not really up to snuff. But the you know, last Sunday was a 10, you know, definitely a 10. And yet what matters is Kierkegaard, who is a, who is a, a theologian and philosopher, uh, Christian philosopher, Christian theologian in the 18th, in the 19th century, uh, did not become well read until the middle of the 20th century. He was a, I believe, he was a Dane. He said that we, basically, I'm paraphrasing. He said that we perform for an audience of one. And the problem today is that too often when we attend church, we think that we are the spectators and the people on stage are the performers. In reality, the people on stage are prompters. As Shakespeare said, all of the world is a stage. We are all performers and we are all listening and waiting to hear God's applause. Well done. Good job. Bravo, you know. And so often when we go to church, we're walking out going, yeah, they just didn't really do it for me today. And I'm going, yeah, well, how was your performance? Because the, really the matter is who is critiquing the performance, you or God? So, I know, I love Kierkegaard. I love some of the things about him. Some of them were, eh, but... A lot of what he had said, I resonate with. And um, you might find that uh, reading him might be of interest to you. So just say that as a side. I I covered him in one of my classes at Grace. I taught taught an introductory course to philosophy. I never considered myself a philosopher, but I I taught it. Yeah, I don't know, maybe so. All right, so let's continue on. Uh... So what, overall, this chapter, what do you think is the purpose of this chapter in the book? It doesn't seem to have any great redeeming value. It doesn't show leadership. Um, it's 18. just like this weird story. It's the preamble to 18. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have time to get into a lot of 18, but let me just say this about 18. In 18, we're going to find that Dan, the tribe of Dan, decides they're going to uh, move. They're unhappy with their their lot that God has given them, and we'll break that uh, out a little bit more. But one of the things that they're going to end up doing is they're going to end up stealing Micah's idols, and they're going to buy off his priest, and they're going to reestablish themselves in the northern part of the kingdom, the very north part, and they're going to become the first of the tribes that worship a different god. They go into idolatry first. I'm sorry? Yeah, it is, kind of, yeah, a lot. You know, it's like the guy that lived on the island that had uh, three buildings when they found him. You know, he said, well, what's the, the one in the middle? Well, that's my house. What's the one on the, what's the building on the left? Well, that's the church I, uh, that's the church I go to. He said, well, what about the one on the right? That's the church I used to go to. <laughs> yeah, so. So that, that chapter 18 opens with Dan, if you're saying, so they still hadn't moved into the, land assigned to them when Israel was divided up. So yep. how many hundreds of years are we past? Uh, We're not, uh, this is early. Uh, interestingly enough, Joshua. this is really early in the, the beginning of, uh, even though it's put at the end of the book, it's really early in the beginning of of, uh, of Judges. But it's, it's probably, it's the third generation. Well, that's uh, after, like, Joshua? Yeah. So remember, you, the beginning of Joshua, we read about the fact that Joshua and his generation, and then the second generation, and by the third generation, they had forgotten all about God, basically, pretty much. And we remember we, we equated that to the fact that what becomes, you know, our belief system becomes uh, a series of principles by the time we're in the second generation. By the time we're in the third generation, they're just a, 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 a slight suggestion 
you know. So this may be 60, 75 years or something. Yeah, no, probably no more than 100 at the most, I would guess. But it's interesting, when you look at 18 in the beginning, it says that the Danites were seeking an inheritance for itself. Yep. So they were not satisfied with what God gave that, them. Exactly. Exactly, yes. It, it's really fascinating. And we'll, I guess we can go down that road a little bit. we got a few minutes, so let's do that. All right, so we're in chapter 18. And uh, let me get to the front of my notes. Okay, here we go. So we're going to talk about Dan, the Danite migration. And to do this, we probably... Let's look at uh, the verse, uh, first uh, 13 verses of, of um, 18. I know we won't have enough time, but I don't know where to break it otherwise. So uh, let's do that. Uh, Gary, we're going to pick up with you in 18, and we'll go around the room again. Now in those days Israel had no king, and the tribe of Dan was trying to find a place where they could settle, for they had not yet moved into the land assigned to them when the land was divided among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zora and Eshtel to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to see the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? My guy has done a lot for me. He replied to them. He hired me to be his personal priest. <laughs> so they said to him, Please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. The priest said to the five men, Yes, go in peace. Go in peace. The Lord will lead you on your way. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people that were therein, how they dwelt careless after the, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, and there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. And they were far from the Sidonians and had no business with any man. When they returned to Zora and Eshtol, their fellow Danite asked them, How did you find them? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into their hands. A land that lacks nothing, whatever. Then 600 men from the clan of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtol. Then they went up and encamped in Kera, Jerem, and, Ju and Judah. Therefore, they called the place Madahat Dan. To this day, there, there it is, west of Kera, Mira. From there, they went to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Okay. So that place there in Kareth Jerem is, uh, translates uh, to Dan's camp. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called that to this day. So uh, anyhow, so we have here, we have in, the, in that day, there was no king in Israel. And so the tribe of Dan decides that what God has told them and what God has given them is too hard to possess. Now, they have the small, one of the smallest uh, pieces of property of uh, the tribes. They're, they go all the way to the coast, but they, uh, they back up against the, the hill country, the, the Shephala. So, and they have valleys that are there, and those valleys are, are fertile. The problem is they can't get down into them because they can't throw out the people that are there. They're not apparently strong enough, or they've not asked God's direction, 
Or there's some reason why they have not conquered that land. So this was the piece assigned to them. This is the sign. And they're still not in there. They're wandering around. They're 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 probably in the hill country and on the tops of the hills, but they're not down into the valleys where the where the fertile land is. So it's really hard to to uh, to grow crops. It's hard to uh, sustain yourself. Chariots can go along there. Yep. Battles are easier to one. Yep. So what we have here is you'll notice that they decide that they're going to move. They're going to look for another place. Now, did they ask God? Is there any indication that they asked God? No. Didn't get God's opinion. So it's all yeah, based upon... Wasn't really connected at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to get to that in a second. But yeah, think about the fact they come, they, they don't bother to ask God. They just decide that they're going to do it on their own, on their own human endeavor, on their own enterprise. And we're going to do this. We don't need to know what God's providence is. We don't need to know what God's will is. We're just going to do what we want. We think it'd be better if we left where God wants us to be. How many times has that happened in my life or yours? God has said, this is where I want you to be. And, of course, you go, you know what? It's a little too hard. It's getting a little, you know, it's, it, I, I forgot to wear my asbestos shorts today, you know, and so it's, it's a little hot. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to find a, an easier place. Have you ever noticed that when you do that, that you rarely get rid of the problem? It's usually because you take the problem with you. It turns into a bigger problem. Yeah. And I'm not referring to your wife or children. Just, just <laughs> let you know that, okay? I'm talking about you. All right. I'm sorry? How long were they there before they decided that? Well, probably, again, somewhere between, uh, you know, the, the, in, jo- in uh, Joshua, they've got all this time that they're conquering the land, and so all of the, the, the tribes are kind of together, and eventually Joshua says, okay, we've done the most of the, the big mop, the, the big battles, we now leave you to do your own mop up in your own lands. So again, from the time of Joshua dying until the time of this taking place is probably somewhere within about 100 years. So they've been kind of floundering for a while, and they've decided, you know what, I'm just done. Now, part of that, perhaps, is the fact that what? They haven't asked God for his help. They have to, and they've not done it God's way, which tends to, you know, because God says, this is where I want you to be. And they're going to go, you know what? This place up here looks really nice. And by the way, Sidon is over here on the coastline. And Sidon and Tyre were the two major uh, cities, city-states during this time for quite a few years. In fact, Tyre uh, eventually outshines Sidon. But at this point in time, Sidon is the bigger of the two and the more important of the two cities uh, that are there along the Lebanese coast. So um, they uh, they decide they're gonna they're gonna go someplace else, and they send out some spies. What does that remind you of? Entering the yeah Canaan. Yeah, we send the twelve <laughs> tribes to check out the the land and see how they're doing, and they come back and they go, "It's a land of milk and honey." But they're giants in the land. Yeah, what's he, or they say? This land is, uh, is uh, their land lacks nothing, and they're prosperous. And that's where we want to be. We want, we want easy pickings. <clears throat> of course, none of us have ever done that, right? Hmm. This migrate, so chapter 18 is all about the migration of the tribe of Dan. <coughs> and um, according to this, they were ineffective in conquering the people that owned this uh, the land, and primarily they lived in the hills, according to, uh, uh, oh, let's look at uh, Judges uh, chapter 1, and I think we'll talk a little bit about it. Judges chapter 1, verse 34. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plains, and the Ammonites were determined also to hold out in Mount Harris and Ajalon and Shalabim. Uh, but when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. And the boundary of the Amorites was set was at the Scorpion Pass in Selah and beyond. So the Amorites, 
Apparently, at one time, Amorites were on both sides of the Jordan. Because remember, we talked about this. There was this, this tribe. This is also called uh, uh, Gilead over here. And uh, the Amorites claimed that uh, this was their land. Remember? And, and, and they, they went up against Israel some three, four hundred years before, and it was conquered, and, uh, but they're still apparently over here as well. So they apparently, maybe they went, maybe their property went this way, I don't know. We don't know for sure, or at least I don't know for sure. But that they're the ones that are causing problems for, for Dan, and Dan is having a problem. So again, uh, the normal reaction is if it's too hard, we just get, you know, we're not going to do what God said. It's too hard to obey God. Just saying. All right, so we, I see right now we're going to have to leave from here. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is not a, a large tribe. It is one of the smallest tribes, Dan. And we don't know why. Well, that might be one of the reasons why they have the smallest, one of the smaller territories is because of that. Benjamin as well has a small territory. But we will talk about that next week. Just remember this. God says, if God tells you that this is what you should do, don't run away. Don't migrate to someplace else. God wants you to stay there for a reason. So learn what the reason is and stick to it because God will eventually will bless you if you, are, if you are obedient to his will. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Thank you for the way your word encourages us and challenges us and at times steps on our toes rather strongly. We pray that you'd help us, Father, that we might be willing to follow you in spite of what we perceive as difficulties, understanding that the purpose of that is to make us more like your son and, and remake us in his image. We ask that you'd guide and direct us throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.